you have to understand that the ag industry is really small. And, and all those people that are in your class you're sitting next to, you're, you're going to be doing business with them. You know, so make those relationships and, and you're going to have collaborators for life. And the same thing in grad school. And, and once you get to grad school, you understand that. But, you know, if in your master's program, you make 10 close friends and your Ph.D., you make a different 15 friends. When you graduate, you've got 25 close friends all over the industry that want to help you. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts, swine management to the next level, cloudfarms.com, Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance, Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Odiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Hello, everyone. I'm your host for today's podcast. I'm Laura Greiner. And with me today, I have Dr. Bob Toller who is a distinguished professor from South Dakota State University. How are you today, Bob? I'm doing great, Laura, how about you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Well, Bob, we're really glad to have you on today and I'm excited to talk to you about uh, the topic at hand. But before we really get started, I'd like for you to take a moment or two and just give our audience a little bit of a background about who you are and how you made it to South Dakota State. Well, thank you. Yep. So uh, actually, I grew up in a diversified family farm in, in South Central South Dakota. I uh, went to South Dakota State University, uh, graduated with my bachelor's degree in 1982, uh, which was the beginning of the farm crisis. And there weren't very many jobs out there. And, and luckily, Dr. Rick Wallstrom was teaching swine prod at the time and uh, actually asked me if I thought about grad school. And I had no clue what grad school was, but it uh, be not having a job. So I said, sure. I uh, did that, uh, loved what I was doing. I uh, was fortunate enough to get an assistantship at Kansas State. I uh, worked with some great people there who are close friends to this day. Uh, finished up in 1988 and then started a swine extension specialist here in Brookings in 1988. And have held a variety of roles since then. Uh, right now, it's probably about 60% extension, 20 teaching, 20 research. So, uh, I, you know, one of my friends from industry said we have the world's best jobs because we get paid to help our friends. And, and that's kind of what I feel like. You know, I get to work with great producers and great students. So uh, it doesn't get much better than that. No, it certainly doesn't. That's for sure. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Healthy Farms by Bioverse. We have a time and labor saving product for you. AgriSlats by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With AgriSlats, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Well, Bob, you know, one of the things that, that we talk about quite often is where's the role of the university heading, um, particularly as we've seen consolidation in the swine industry, and we see um, companies having their own research barns and so forth. The, the question still kind of hangs out there as to what is that role for the university going forward, particularly in swine production? 
And so I'd like to take some time today and really visit with you on that topic. And so I just kind of throw it out to you at first is, you know, where do you see that role for the university in, in research and how we can influence the swine industry? You know, and I think one of the things that we've seen happen in, in the land grant systems, there's been a lot of consolidation. I mean, it, you know, in the 60s and 70s, every land grant had a poultry science department, they had a dairy, they had, I mean, they did all things to everybody. And as budgets got cut, you see more and more universities that have, have specialized. And, and if you look at the, the number of land grants that actually have strong swine programs, not very many, but the need in the industry is still there. And so as, as you look at that human capital need, I think one of the big goals or, or challenges of, of the university is get technically trained young people that can fill those needs in the industry, be it working for the large company with allied industry, going, going to vet school or going back home into production. But one of the challenges, again, Laura, that we have as time changed, you know, when I was a kid, everybody grew up on a farm with species. And you look at an 18-year-old coming to SDSU or Iowa State today, they probably haven't been exposed to all species. Or if their dad's managed a saw farm, they probably didn't work there a lot. So they don't have those experiences that we've had. So that's what some of the training has to do. And I think that's a, a great opportunity for uh, the production systems to collaborate with us on, on to helping everybody. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, so as we kind of build from that, after we, we go through the undergraduate program, where do you see the fit with our graduate students? I think one of the things that, that's so important, again, we have fewer and fewer young people that have actual production experience. So, yep, we can train them up. Here's, here's the scientific method. Here's how you do research. But uh, the results that you're going to see in, in 50 pens with, with four pigs per pen versus in a 2,400-head barn is, is totally different. Uh, a great story, I was in grad school here with Dr. Bart Borg, who is now a standard nutrition. And when Bart graduated, he went to work for farmland industries and they started doing some large scale research and all the small pen research didn't get the same answer as the large pens in commercial production. And so I think that's one thing that we need. We view the university as, as here's the point, we train them the scientific method, how to figure out what the problem is, how to design a study to solve that. But then we also need to find collaborators where we can do it on a production scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point because a lot of times in our universities, we do have those smaller facilities, right? Those smaller facilities allow us to, to do some very basic research. Um, maybe we get more replications with smaller numbers or whatever our needs may be. They're a little bit more flexible maybe than what a production system may be, but we do need that, that next step. And so how do you do that? How do you go from taking a university facility and, and doing research there into taking your, your research into production? You know, I think, you know, one of the things that we can do, I mean, we need to, universities need to establish relationships, you know, uh, with those industry partners. But I think oftentimes we're looking for the same thing. You know, we want to have the same answer. And, you know, one example would be with everything with sustainability, you know, going on national pork boards, one of their top two things, and, and the hybrid rye comes in there. And uh, actually, I got a uh, grant from the National Pork Board. Uh, Ms. Caitlin Sullivan is, is a National Pork Board scholar here. And so her project is, is working with hybrid rye. And so we started visiting with some of the people at, at the Pipestone system, and they had the same questions themselves, you know. And so what we were able to do uh, 
we did a, a, a trial and actually in one of the 2400 head uh, uh, finishing barns uh, on a hybrid rye. And, and Caitlin, I mean, their crew did a lot of the work, but Caitlin was there for all the way days helping. And then when those pigs got marked at a whole stone, Caitlin was down there on the kill floor getting fat samples, carcass samples, that kind of stuff. And then we took the loins and bellies. We took those down to Kansas State. And, and Travis, Dr. Travis O'Quinn did all the sensory panel work. Uh, we worked with Northern Crops Institute up in Fargo looking at some milling differences. And then finally, this fall, this winter, we're going to work with, with Spronk Brothers, uh, Randy and Seth, and looking at how it fits agronomically in, into the system. So, again, you know, Caitlin's going to have tremendous experiences along with the economic stuff. And, and again, we've got that tie with industry saying, yeah, we've got some people who can, can collaborate, help you with these things. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of stop for a moment before we go back over to university collaborations, because you're talking about a study here with hybrid rye. Mm -hmm. Maybe not all of our audience is familiar with what that is. Can you share a little bit more about what that is? Sure. So hybrid rye is, is just a small grain and that's typically used quite a bit in, in Western Europe due to, due to the growing conditions. And, uh, you know, we used to use, well, rye used to be considered a feedstuff for, for pigs, but it's got ergot issues, does, you know, yields not as much. So really, I mean, it's only used for whiskey and that kind of stuff, right? But in Europe, they've developed a variety, hybrid rye, that's ergot resistance. It gets really, you know, what we're seeing in, in here in, in South Dakota anyway, 100 to 110 bushel an acre yield. It's got the same test weight as corn. So one of the things that where hybrid rye has received a lot of attention in the United States is as a cover crop. And again, we're, we're doing those to increase the diversity of our cropping systems, having organic fertilizer and, and those kinds of things. But one of the great things about hybrid rye is it doesn't have the ergot issues and we're seeing really good yields with it. So again, if there is a value, if you can document a value to increase in sustainability with having hybrid rye in that rotation, all of a sudden for your overall farming enterprise, it makes sense to use it. Mm -hmm. Sure. So what did you find out in your study? So what we did, we started uh, pigs at about 95 pounds, went to 275 pounds, and we looked, we had four different levels of rye inclusion, either 0, 40, 70, or 100% replacement of corn with rye. And uh, when we looked at uh, average daily gain, average daily feed intake, we saw a linear decrease as rye levels increased. And, uh, but it was interesting. I mean, it almost looked quadratic when we hit about 70% replacement rate. So it was pretty good. And after that, it, it wasn't good. Feed efficiency wasn't affected at all. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, when we looked at the carcass characteristics, uh, yield, uh, yield went down, uh, hot carcass weight went down, and also there was a decrease in, in back fat thickness. Uh, however, uh, there's also a big decrease in iodine value, which, again, if there is ever a time where we start using DDGS again or something, we worry about that, that's one way to bring, you know, IV values down. Interesting, we also did uh, taste panel work with the bellies, both bacon, smoked bellies, and, and chops. And on chops, we did see a decrease in, in juiciness and tenderness but there were no flavor differences. But for all the things that we looked at on, on the bellies, there was no differences there. So that's, that's a really good sign. And, and the other thing, just, you know, uh, anecdotally, I mean, the, the fat is, is harder, obviously, with lower iodine values and much wider. Uh, at Northern Crops Institute, we looked 
did some, uh, we looked at going through a roller mill and hammer mill, if it would have an increased uh, uh, energy requirement, a slower throughput through the mill, and actually it didn't. Because, I mean, but when you think about small grains, you would think it's going to take longer to go through a roller mill just because it crushes and not explodes like corn. And and we didn't see that. And then actually uh, the Chandler, Minnesota feed mill, they had a triple roll mill, and they found no difference between rolling corn and rolling hybrid rye. So those were all things that, that were pretty interesting. That is interesting. So just out of curiosity, then when you when you set up your corn versus rye, you're running it over obviously a similar grinding system, but are you trying mm-hmm. to keep them at similar particle size then when you were running your test or did you try to pellet it or how did you ma- manipulate the diets there? Right. Nope. Uh, it was, it was a meal form diet and we tried to keep them all at the same particle size. And I think, you know, uh, the corn was pretty close, uh, was slightly lower than about 600 microns. And, and the hybrid rye was just a little bit, maybe 650, something like that. So they were, they were really pretty close together. And again, that's just, the, you know, when, it, when I talk to our students, I mean, you know, when they do a, a feeding trial, that to them seems like it's the most important thing in the world. But when you look at what makes a difference in operation economically, there's about 30 other things that, that come into play there. And, and that since very few universities have feed milling departments, we forget about that. And especially, I mean, when you go internationally, when electrical costs are really high, or in the United States, when labor costs are really high, you know, things that mess up throughput of a feed mill can have a huge economic impact on, on feed cost. And so, uh, so on, you know, when we balance a diet, it may look like it's the best option, but all of a sudden when we have to run it through the mill or do other things, it's no longer that, that attractive. Absolutely. I've heard some, some horror stories on buying some product that was cheap and then not being able to get it out of bins and so forth. So yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Uh, ingredient handling is important that sometimes nutritionists tend to forget about. Um, yeah, you remember the days of the early days of DDGS, and you saw those pictures of rail cars in, in Mexico where guys with pickaxes were trying to get the DDGS out. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, you talked a little bit about energy efficiency at the mill. How did you um, account for energy on this product? So you, you said you were replacing it um, for for corn replacement, but I assume that was on a pound per pound basis, or were you trying to nope. keep them isocaloric, or how? What was your replacement? Yeah, yep. so we, we kept them isocaloric, and so we used the uh, you know uh, you know Dr. Hanstein had done a lot of work on metabolism trials and energy levels with hybrid rye, and so those are the values that we use to keep them isocaloric. Okay, perfect. So I think that will kind of help some of our nutritionists who may be listening kind of understand a little bit more about how you set that trial up. You also talked just briefly there about some economics beyond the feed mill. So mm-hmm. what popped into my head was really, so you have this relationship with Pipestone, you're in their commercial barns or you're in the research barns that, mm-hmm. that you share with, with Pipestone. Did you ever take time to work with your students to integrate them into Pipestone to understand the economics behind the decision that they were making? Yep. And so that's one of the things. So Dr. Kia Berg and, and Dr. John DeYoung work quite a bit with Caitlin, especially Kia, you know, and, and we're going through some of those things. So, you know, in their decision making process, when they're putting something together, 
here's all the things that that they look at. So yeah, I mean, so you're you're exactly right, Laura. I mean, it just wasn't that they were doing trials. All of a sudden, we've got two awesome mentors from industry for our graduate students. So I think that's a that's a payback as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something we hear quite regularly is that we want our nutritionists, particularly those that are going to be in tech service or um, perhaps direct, directly into production to really understand the economics behind their decisions. And so I like that idea of being able to take your research, run it in a commercial barn, and then work with production companies to really get a good gauge on what does this mean in terms of results and economic impact for that company. That's right. Because when the, when the young people leave SDSU or whatever university and go in the industry, I mean, they're expected to be able to hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. And, and they have to understand how those decisions are made, why they're made. And uh, there's probably a lot, these types of collaborations expose them to things that we as faculty member can't. Correct. You know, the other thing you mentioned there just briefly was Caitlin is part of the the National Pork Board Fellowship Program. And we talk a little bit, too, about other collaborations. So, you know, we obviously know that production companies and and even uh, private farmers can be very influential in helping universities set up research programs. But what about groups like National Pork Board or any of our state pork producing groups? Do you find that those collaborations can be valuable? I think there really are for, for several different reasons. I mean, you know, we, we got a new $7.4 million swine unit built in, in you know, 2016. And, and the cool thing about it, almost all of it was paid for with private donations. And we got over 130 people, anywhere from a guy with a finishing barn to some of the larger systems. But we had like South Dakota soybeans, Minnesota soybeans, South Dakota, Minnesota, South or Iowa pork producers kicked in to make that happen. So obviously, you know, from the university standpoint, you know, money coming in is is great like that. But we did another trial and actually thanks to uh, Dave Chrysler, who was the former uh, exec of, of Minnesota Port, came up to us one time and said, hey, have you ever thought about doing an above ground burial? Because this was in 2018, 19, when African swine fever was running rampant. And it's like, okay, how do we handle mass mortalities? And so we, we started thinking, yeah, we could do it here. And we put together a budget. And so talked to Glenn Muller from South Dakota Pork. He was excited. And then Dave started talking to people at, at Iowa pork producers, Nebraska pork producers. And so pretty soon we had those four pork state organizations all chip into that project. And we, you know, we utilized people from uh, SDSU's Veterinary Science Department, Dr. John McMain from our Ag and Biosystems Engineering, actually Dr. Amy Schmidt from University of Nebraska-Lincoln Ag and Biosystems Engineering came together. So I think, you know, again, going back to the time when, when universities had a lot of people who could do a lot of things, we were kind of our own little islands, you know, and, and we remember last year's football game, so there's no way in the world we're going to work with somebody else because they beat us. But now we're, we're only one person deep in a lot of things. And so if we can go across those lines, we can do a lot more. And if it's good ideas, I mean, we, we see a lot more acceptance of our state organizations, even national organizations saying, hey, we're going to pump money into University X, even though it's not in our state, because the information they're going to get is going to help all our producers. And so I think a lot of those barriers that used to be there uh, are gone, or at least getting getting better, and so hopefully that that will continue as as 
programs like this continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a great example. And we've, we've seen that encouragement over the years from National Pork Board, as, as well as many other funding agencies that are asking for who your collaborators are, and in fact, encouraging whether it's across disciplines, uh, departments, universities, different states, et cetera. And so uh, I think your example there is a, is a really nice one to show how we can take advantage of that and provide information to our producers in a timely manner. Yep. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that project. So what did you find? What did you do and what did you find? Yep. And so so basically what an above ground burial is, it's, it's kind of a combination of, of deep burial and composting. So if a foreign animal disease were to hit, rendering trucks aren't going to be allowed on the road. So how do you handle, you know, if you have to euthanize 2,400 market pigs or, or 5,000 sows, how do you handle that? And, you know, a, a quick way would seem like, okay, let's just dig a big hole and, and put them in there. But in, in 2001, when foot and mouth disease was running rampant in Western Europe, we were actually doing a sabbatical in the Netherlands when that was going on. You know, so you saw these big pits full of animals and they were burning them. But later, I mean, the, the water table was so high, there was a lot of groundwater contamination. And so, if, again, if you look in, in parts where our states come together, there's some pretty sandy soil, so deep burial is not an option. When you look at composting, that's great for a small number of mortalities, but it really wouldn't work for a huge number. And so Gary Flory from... Uh, Virginia came up with this concept of above ground burial. And simply what that is, you would dig a trench about 22 inches deep and you would layer it with a carbon source. And in Virginia, Gary used sawdust. Then you'd place, place a single layer of mortalities on that and then cover them over with the fill dirt. And uh, it would actually compost and within a couple of years break down and everything was good. So what we were looking at here in South Dakota was two things. Uh, we were looking at season of the year because, again, uh, our, the, the winters that we have in this part of the world can be kind of nasty. So we did uh, a set of above-ground burials in June, and then we did another one in November. And the other thing that we looked at is, okay, you know, South Dakota, we don't have a lot of trees, but we've got a lot of cornstalk bales, right? So we, we looked at wood chips versus, or sawdust versus cornstalks as the carbon source. And uh, the other thing that we did in there, we did a couple things. So we put some test wells in at, at 6, 18, and 36 inches to look at leaching. You know, would, would the nitrates leach? Did we get E. coli leaching? But then as a, um, as a substitute for African swine fever, we also, in our, in our vet science department, challenged uh, some feeder pigs with Seneca Valley virus and then uh, euthanize those pigs, and we put them in the pit as well. And then the water samples, we, we analyzed for Seneca Valley virus. And so uh, what we saw, I mean, at first when we took the water samples, we found Seneca Valley virus uh, uh, DNA at 6 and 18. That's like, oh, nuts, this is not a good thing. But we had, we had never, in the six months that we did it, we never found anything at the 36-inch level. I think some of the stuff that Gary Flory did in, in Oklahoma has, has also shown that. And then we also dug up the mortalities and uh, or the feeder pigs and took uh, samples out of there, and they were PCR positive. But, you know, as you know, all PCR tells you that the genetic material or parts of the genetic material are there, that we don't know if it's live or dead or anyway. And then so we did, we took those samples of water and tissue 
and some of the carbon sources that were PCR positive for Seneca Valley virus and did a bioassay. And so we, we challenged, uh, I think, 24 naive nursery pigs with, with that positive material and nothing broke. So that tells us that, that, so that made us feel good because the worst thing you'd want to do is bury them and then have live virus get in the aquifer and then anybody pulling water off from a well from that aquifer just got contaminated. So that was good news. Uh, it was, it was a, a, a great year and a terrible year to do that trial because we had record rainfall in Brookings in June. And uh, yeah, we had water standing in those pits and it's like, oh crap, this is terrible. And so we, we did not get as, as much of a temperature rise as we'd hoped. Okay, so that part was bad, but uh, we did get high enough to, and I forget exactly what temperature, Laura, but we did see some inactivation of the virus. But if you were concerned about leaching, you know, this was a great year to look at it. Uh, in, in the wintertime, uh, it was just as effective. And actually what we saw, if, if you look from a heating standpoint, corn stalks work better. If you look at reduction of E. coli and, and nitrates, uh, the sawdust worked better. That's interesting. But, it, it, you know, it's hopefully one of those trials you, you pray that you'll never, ever have to use. Absolutely. But it's very valuable information. And I know it's, it's such a concern for our industry is carbon sourcing. Yep. particularly in these these times when we might need it. And so right. that's very useful information. And again, I think that's a great example of how you were able to take different collaborators across different states and pull it together to answer questions that are valuable for our producers. Right. Um, and, you know, then the other thing that, you know, the next step that went beyond that, then, you know, the Minnesota uh, Department of Ag, along with the state vet, and I think with Pipestone and Christensen's and working at the experiment farm at Lamberton, I mean, they took that the next step farther, you know, and they did the grinding and, and, and mixing and, and corn stalks and all those kinds of things. So, again, I think that's just another great example that we see today of different entities coming together to be able to, to work together and solve those problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think those are some great examples. Before I jump over to our, our key questions, I wanted to ask you one more thing, Bob, because I know you're really passionate about uh, professional development and getting our graduate students developed so that they can be um, valuable to our industry. But how do we even get those students? How do we get them from undergraduate to graduate? Uh, do you have any suggestions, advice, or or thoughts on how we can get more of our students into um, graduate work? Yes, I do. You know, and again, you know, because you, you get in most cases, you get a, an 18 year old young person coming off the farm and they're they love animal science. Right. And they say, OK, I've got I've got three tracks that I can do. I'm going to get my degree, go back home, take over the family farm. You know, I'm going to get into vet school, go back home or whatever and practice or, you know, I'll go into allied industry. But it never clicks in their mind about graduate school, you know, and uh, and again, uh you know, you hear the story that the average debt from a young person graduating from a college veterinary medicine is about $300,000, you know, and which which is, is a pretty. But again, if that's your passion, great, go for it. But if you can get a Ph.D., you know, and get paid going to school for that, like I tell our students, you know, if you're a tech service nutritionist and somebody calls you up and says, hey, my sows aren't eating. You're going to go out to the farm and, you know, you're going to take a look at the feed. You're going to take a look at the environment. You do the health status. You look at body condition, you know, water flow and all those kinds of things. They call the veterinarian out there 
they're going to, you know, they'll do a little more on the health side, but they're going to look at the exact same things too. So getting them to understand that, you know, if you're a tech service, you know, PhD person, or even a master's with a lot of our companies, you're going to do a lot of paid contact, producer contact that you love. So the what, what, what we've done, and I know a lot of other universities have done a, a good job or starting to, is looking at undergraduate research. And so in that freshman year or sophomore year, if you see this, these young people who are, are really good students and have a passion for livestock, say, hey, you know, have you ever thought about research? And they'll say no. And then you get them in the barns and, you know, you can have them in the barns feeding, bleeding, doing those kinds of things in the lab. And I think once they understand what they can do, that really gets them excited. And so, uh, you know, again, that's another thing that the National Pork Board does. They have the SREE undergraduate grants to do research. And they give a, I think this year they're giving out six grants to universities to get undergraduates involved in research. And then they can present their, their papers at Midwest Animal Science meetings. You know, you get to see Nick Omaha for the meetings and you see all the other cool papers that are going on. It's like, wow, you know, I didn't realize that I could do that with an animal science graduate degree. So I think the, the days are done where students are coming to us to look to go to grad school. So we've got to go back and, and mine, identify those great young people and, and give them the option to say, hey, here is a great career track for you. Uh, and we're going to need them. You know, when, when Gary Ali was still alive, actually when I was at Kansas State, so when I left like 1988, he went through and looked at all the, the, the just the PhDs at universities that were retiring. And there are not enough people in the pipeline. And actually, that's gotten worse, you know, because, you know, in a few years, I mean, Lee Johnson and myself and, you know, Mike, there's a whole series, Jerry, we're going to retire. Who's going to replace us? And so we've got to have good young people with with practical swine production experience who are also great researchers, great extension people to, to step up and, and fill that void. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think those are, are great comments and thoughts for our individuals that are listening and certainly, I enjoyed your conversation around how the universities can collaborate with uh, industry partners to help solve those problems for our producers and, and address current issues. It is time to our famous three. Did you know that you can improve productivity across all your farms using real-time data? With a user-friendly app and a secure cloud-based solution, Cloud Farms provides real-time reporting for your entire team from anywhere. Our benchmarking farm-to-farm analysis allows you to make data-driven decisions to meet your company's goals, providing only the best for all types of pig production. If you want to take your company to the next level, go to www.cloudfarms.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. As our time is kind of wrapping up, Bob, I want to jump over to those three infamous questions that we always ask our guest speaker. The, the first one here is really around, you know, what's your favorite swine resource? You know, actually, uh, the one I like, it's, it's a little bit older. You know, for, on the nutrition side, I, I really like the National Swine Nutrition Guide. You know, it was put together in 2010. It's old, uh, but it's got, a, you know, it's, it's really production practical based, you know, and so that's pretty good. But then the other, you know, and again, this is for the young people out there. Actually, my best resource is, is my colleagues out in industry and at other universities. You know, like, I mean, if I have a water question, 
Mike Brum, John Patience are the first two people I'm going to call, right? I mean, that's that's the beauty of the internet too. I mean, you say, okay, Mike, John, I got a water issue. What I deal with, or here's another topic that I that I know somebody's really good in. I'm going to call them, you know. Or it's like, man, I don't know where to go, and so I contact somebody and they'll and they'll get me there. So that's really what I do when I'm when I'm looking for great resources, great answers. Yeah, absolutely. Networking is a wonderful thing, especially in today's age and world. Well, you know, we try to tell our students like our our introductory animal science class is, is 150 students, you know, so they get in there and it's like, holy smokes, you know, our town doesn't have that many people in it. But it's like, you know, you, you have to understand that the ag industry is really small and, and all those people that are in your class you're sitting next to, you're, you're going to be doing business with them, you know, so make those relationships and, and you're going to have collaborators for life. And the same thing in grad school. And, and once you get to grad school, you understand that. But, you know, if in your master's program, you make 10 close friends and your PhD, you make a different 15 friends. When you graduate, you've got 25 close friends all over the industry that want to help you. So it's a very good point. It's a good, good demonstration of how that works for sure. Yep. How about something that's not swine related? Are you reading a book currently that you would recommend to the group? Yeah, uh, a really interesting book. Uh, the name of it is In Search of God in Guinness. And, and what it's about, it's about the, uh, the Guinness Brewing family. And, it, and it's, it's a really cool story because Arthur Guinness is the guy who started it, and he was born in 1724. But what makes it so interesting, at that time, beer was viewed as a health product, okay? Because in, in Europe, the water was so terribly polluted I mean, just from, you know, how, how waste and everything was handled. I mean, if you drink water, you're going to get nasty sick. And then on the other side of the spectrum, gin was really cheap and they had a huge alcohol problem. And so, uh, and actually a lot of the churches and stuff brewed beer. Uh, that's where a lot of the German, great German beer came from. And I like great beer. But, uh, but anyway, and so they started selling uh, uh, beer. And uh, again, it, it was purified, it was fermented, so it was healthy. It had B vitamins, you know, those that infamous unidentified growth factor, and it was great. And so what's really cool is how that grew, but there's so many other cool things in, in that story because if you look at the Guinness family, uh, uh, Arthur Guinness was in, impacted by John Wesley, and uh, he had a huge social conscience. And what's cool, so if you look at the Guinness factories, they were the first ones to provide free health care. And this was in the 1800s, free health care to their employees. They provided, uh, they helped them buy homes, decent homes. They would have people, doctors come into homes to make sure, sure children were taken care of. They had free education for the children of the employees and retirement plans. So, I mean, again, that was in the 1800s. They were so, you know, thinking about that. And, uh, you know, they, they're really active on, on the mission side, the church side, and those kinds of things, but, but huge philanthropists. And so, uh, again, that really makes you think, I mean, we've, been, we've all been blessed in a lot of ways. And, and so we need to look at how to give back. But, I mean, they were so far ahead of, of everybody else. And now I think, you know, at one time, Guinness was the most consumed beer in the world in 150 companies. But it's, it's really a great read because it, it talks about the business side. And how it how it handled different challenges and that stuff, but then all the good stuff that that they did with the wealth that they accumulated. Mm -hmm. 
That sounds really interesting. I enjoy nonfiction books. And so that might be one that I might have to go pick up at the library. That sounds good. Yep. And then, you know, get a pint of pint of Guinness. And then <laughs> yeah. as you're reading it, you know, just kind of, it'll, it'll make a great, you know, when in the winter, when there's a blizzard going on, you can hear it howling at the fireplace on a pint of stout there and away you go. <laughs> That'll, that'll be a plan. I'll have to work on that for this winter. There you go. Well, Bob, the last question we like to ask really comes down to uh, if you can think of somebody that you define as successful in your life, what would be a characteristic that they possess that you think's allowed them to be successful? You know, uh, you know, I think of somebody that, that wants to give back, you know, because I mean, again, I mean, we're where we are because God put us here and, and we're blessed with the things that we're blessed with. It's not because anything that we did, you know? And so all the things that we have, I mean, our education and, and, and those things, we need to look at helping other people, you know? And I think, you know, uh, when Dr. Gordon Spronk retired, he had a, had a great letter and, you know, I'll never forget it because he talked about, you know, he was fortunate enough to drink from wells that other people had dug. You know, and so our responsibility is, is to dig new wells that the young people coming up and other people can do. So, you know, I think what makes somebody really successful is, is not the awards. It's not the it's not the BMWs. It's not those things. It's it's how you change people's lives. And and anybody can do that. You know, uh, somebody struggling, take five minutes to say hi to them or, or visit them. And, you know, in my mind, just listening to people is is a huge gift that that doesn't happen very often so you know to, to in my mind that that's what makes a successful person mm -hmm. oh that's an excellent one i really like that one for sure well bob i do see that our time is up and i i do want to be mindful of that so i again thank you for your time today it's been a great conversation and i've thoroughly enjoyed it and again for our audience um this is dr bob taller from south dakota state university thank you so much bob well, thank you, Laura. Appreciate it. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.